Isaiah chapter 2 strikes us after a challenge to Israel for not knowing God, not knowing its master. I'm going to be right back. I say, I say, in Isaiah chapter 2, we have uh, shocking words from God about the future of Israel and all the nations after the challenge issued in Isaiah 1. Read Isaiah 1 sometime, but just hear it. And I want you to understand why I believe in a future rule of Israel over the nations. It's because I believe in the Word of God. And I don't let New Testament Scripture reinterpret Old Testament. That's not how we're supposed to treat the Old Testament. God is God and uh, we, we honor him for what he said and promised. It will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. That's straight out of, uh, that's straight in, in comparison to Daniel and the, the great mountain that grows up out of the stone that's cut without hands. It, this mountain is a reference to nation. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and the nations, all the nations will stream to it And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that's Yahweh, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem. I believe those words, those very words. I think that what was just said is going to happen. Now, the burden of proof is on those who would say, no, 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 this is Jesus ruling in our heart. Zion is the inner person or something other than actual real estate where Isaiah is standing when he writes this on the, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. He will judge between the nations. See, there's nations in the last days. And there is the, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, somehow judging between the nations. It's just right there in plain language. And I've translated this from the Hebrew, and you know what it says? It says, when you translate it from Hebrew into English, it says, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. I am looking for that. That day when we're actually in peace between the nations. But for that to happen... Yahweh, somehow the Lord, is going to have to set himself up in a position to politically administer judges between them. That's what rulership is, is judging between the nations. Now the challenge then to God, from God to Israel, come therefore house of Jacob and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you, the Lord, have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they're filled with influences from the east and so forth. And so this is, ends up being a judgment oracle against Israel in this um, uh, Isaianic prophecy. But understand what the message is, that there's coming a time when all of the nations being judged by the Lord from Zion, which is Jerusalem, are going to be at peace with one another. I believe this with all my heart. 
But I don't believe that it's possible unless the Lord is personally judging between the nations. In Isaiah 4, and verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. All those that survive the coming judgment on the nations by Jesus in his second advent, who remain in Jerusalem, are holy to the Lord. That's when all Israel is saved. All the believers in the Lord Jesus of Israel after the tribulation that's what he's talking about. They, they'll be called holy in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. And I'll just by way of interpretation, I think the spirit of judgment and burning, I think we met these two angels in Genesis 18. They're the ones that went down to Sodom and had work to do after they got Lot out of Sodom. They're the spirit of burning and judgment. I believe that. Um, but, uh, but that's the kind of thing that's coming Okay, for the world and the earth dwellers, and uh, it's, it's called Jacob's time of trouble or Daniel's 70th week. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over the assemblies, a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory of the Lord will be a canopy, and there will be a shelter to even to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and rain. This is, these, little, these little promises and hopes for Israel and the future for prosperity and blessing are couched in very strong judgment oracles where God is saying, you're in trouble with me and you're about to get it. He's going to lower the boom on them as Isaiah is prophesying, which you have with the Sennacherib invasion of the Assyrians and then, um, and then eventually their uh, full destruction under, uh, and, and deportation under Nebuchadnezzar. See, after all this dealing with the nations, with the Gentile nations is done, you, Israel, are going to be established and glorious because of the presence of the Lord among you, and all the nations are going to come to you and uh, be blessed. And I think that is what we're being groomed to partake in as we uh, serve in this academy phase, this training phase of history where God is grooming us to be the bride of Christ, to rule with our Savior in his coming kingdom. I want to give you a moment for silent prayer uh, to open the word tonight in Luke chapter 24 and, uh, and seek the Lord's grace as we, uh, we come to know better what God is doing with us through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you for this eternal life that we have the privilege of living in right now. Thank you that we can come to your throne of grace through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at any time. In fact, we've been commanded to come before you at all times with our gratitude. Thank you that your Spirit works in us to do that which pleases you. And we pray that tonight, as we think about your Word and your Son's grace to us and your purpose for us, that we'd be encouraged, energized, invigorated, Father, to be about your business. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to try something I haven't done before with the new equipment, but I'm, I'm confident that the equipment can handle it. There it is. Yeah, look at that. Brought to you by YouTube. The equipment can't do it with me unless I do a twister thing, and I'm sorry about that. It's not good showmanship, but I'm not a showman. So there we go. All right. Hey, we even get audio. Good.
I don't know what that YouTube channel, tube channel is. It's war classes. I better come down here so I can see what you're seeing. Watch this closely. This little shot here is very interesting. That's a horrible thing to ever see. Um, that, that smoke in the front of the nose of this airplane was, uh, was a machine gun firing. That's what it looks like when it shoots um, its main gun. This is the A-10 Thunderbolt II, named after a World War II airplane used for close air support. <laughs> That's the coolest sound of all time. <laughs> I wonder if the Lord's, uh, the last trumpet's going to sound something like that. I don't know, but it's going to be some sort of uh, vibration. Um, this is a close air support aircraft that's been in service since it first fielded in 1976, which is a great year to be fielded. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's a, no, for the foreseeable future, there's no replacement for it. It was designed to replace the Sky Raider, which was a Korean War era aircraft. When they determined that um, in, uh, in Vietnam, well, Korea, and then in Vietnam, the World War II stuff, the prop airplanes aren't cutting it for what we need this airplane to do. And... Um, for guys like me that were in the army on the ground, this is the most favorite thing about the Air Force. This is our most favorite aircraft in the world uh, because its job is, is one thing. It is to kill tanks. And, or you saw it kill trucks. But it's designed to kill tanks that are to the front of the infantry or the armor, the guys in the field. And so this is a gun. This is a range, a live range, where they're, they're shooting these targets and, um, and it's kind of rare to be able to see this thing in action. Um, now, this is your tax dollars at work. There's nobody in that, in that Humvee, but it's still driving. And I don't know. I think they're about to missile it. They don't always hit their targets. But you wouldn't have wanted to have been in that when that happened. That would have, with the live round, a 500-pound bomb would have blown that to pieces. I'm taken with this airframe. I think it's a beautiful aircraft. It's called the Warthog because it's so ugly. That's, that's the nickname. They call it the A-10 Warthog. It's, it's named after a World War II aircraft called the Thunderbolt. It's the Thunderbolt II. The, the thing was designed around its main gun, the cannon on the front of it. There we go, yeah. Now, this is actually a Humvee commercial because it's still on all four wheels after that, so that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> There's a, a cannon that's this big on the front. The entire airplane was designed, again, for fielding in 1976, around this main gun, around this chain gun, they call it, or a, a cannon in the front. And it's a, it's a Gatlin-style gun. It's got multiple, um, multiple barrels, and it spins when it, when it shoots. Now, that sound, again, is one of the most beloved sounds to uh, ground forces. When you're military, wow, that's really loud. We've never done the audio through this projector. Nice work on the projector, Joel. Joel, Joel said, let's get this projector. He was right. All right. Turn down the TV a little bit. <laughs> um, this, this aircraft is your most beloved thing if you're under fire and you don't know what you're going to do about it because he can fly right in and shoot the enemy in front of you, and it's called CAS or close air support. It's a really important thing um, that... Uh, that 
our, our soldiers and uh, Marines and ground forces depend on whenever there's, um, there's a threat. That, I want, they want to show you the carnage of what was left after one of those armored Humvees was shot up by it. Of course, Joe has to stand on top. Uh, Joe is the name of the soldier, Private Joe Snuffy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's really nasty inside. I don't know if these guys uh, use soldier English through all this. But look at that hole. That's an entry hole <laughs> to, for that 30-millimeter cannon that, that shot that. Actually, I, did, I think these guys do say some off-color language. I'm glad I was able to mute that there. I didn't know how loud it was going to be. Anyway, I just um, I wanted to show you to, to kind of open tonight. Um, this idea of the Warthog, the A-10 Thunderbolt two, which again is my favorite uh, aircraft because I'm a tanker. Well, I was once a tanker. And you know, once a tanker, always a tanker. Okay, I would show you, I would direct your attention to this picture of the aircraft here. And there's something in this picture that wasn't in the others, but you wouldn't know because you, you, we're not used to seeing it. But um, on this photograph of this Warthog, this A-10 Thunderbolt II, you have this big old thing right here. Now that looks like a missile, looks like an armament under the aircraft, but actually this is a big deal. This is something that we put on for several, probably billion dollars. Uh, and around 2013, we started doing this. I, I think that's, that's when the study was conducted to add fuel reserves, 600 pounds more of fuel so that this aircraft could stay on site longer to provide support for the troops for longer. Because here's the problem with a jet airplane providing your air support. He's got to refuel every uh, at least 30, 40 minutes because those jets, they consume so much fuel. This thing goes 450 miles an hour. It's a very slow jet because it's got a specific mission to kill tanks, which are moving a lot sm slower than 450 miles an hour. And you saw how accurate it is. I mean, it's pretty accurate. It's pretty much an area weapon to shoot that, that truck. I've seen videos, I don't know if they were filed photos uh, that they, they just showed us in the Army, where they showed this thing shooting tanks. I was looking for the tank video where it shoots the tank. The tank armor is about that thick on top. It's really thick in the front because the last thing you ever want to happen to you on Earth um, besides an audit, is, is a tank to shoot you in another tank. It's actually job number one in a tank is not to get shot because it changes your life instantly. That pressure differential on the outside and what happens on the inside, you go from whatever intelligence you had, and after all, not so much you're a tanker, you go from whatever intelligence you had to basically color in books uh, <laughs> from then on when you're in a tank that gets penetrated by another tank. It's the worst thing and so um, what happens with these things is they shoot from above and that means that they're able with the little air, little airplane they're able to take out a 70 ton battle tank by penetrating the armor from the top and it's it's a really um, neat platform and I certainly wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of uh, the A-10 but I wanted to point out that they've added this fuel tank and what they thought was what they're going for by adding this fuel tank which changes the aerodynamics of the airplane it changes how it works a little bit but they found out we could stay on site or loiter is what they call it it's the only time loitering is good is when you need close air support and the airplane stay above you and watch over for the bad guys that are um, going to make your wife a widow um, you want uh, that airplane to stay around and that airplane can do it for 45 or 6 to 60 more minutes with this with this ex extra fuel and that's really important if you have a mission to go protect the troops and to save some lives tragically in the broken world we live in by taking others 
If sometimes you have to show up, and some people, it's horrible, but it's the reality of the world we live in that some people need killing. And tonight we're talking about mission power. We're talking about mission power because we've been looking closely at Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1 and what the Lord gave us for the mission that he's committed to us. And I just love the A-10, and, and I thought that would be a fun thing to introduce as an opening image tonight as we talk about on mission number 14, the power that God has given us. Now, you saw a frontal shot of, of that earlier where uh, the, the aircraft was firing. It was a picture of how it looks when it shoots. And I do have a point here. It is in Luke 24 in Acts chapter 1 tonight, but I, I want you to think about this with me. This airplane, I mean, it looks like it's kind of in a cloud, but it's not. That's smoke from how much ammunition is coming out of that machine gun. They built this whole airplane around just that machine gun, which is specially able with its depleted uranium ammunition to, to destroy pretty much any ground vehicle in any of our possible enemy arsenals. We call it the threat arsenal. And there's a picture of what that chain gun looks like on the front. I know we like the artwork. Those, those, uh, Air, those Air Force guys have all way too much time on their hands painting up the front of the fuselage of their aircraft. But look at that, look at that beautiful machine gun. I just think that is just a work of art. And um, I know that some of you agree. Did you remember the sound? I did want you to hear the sound that that um, uh, emergency broadcast system test sound, that, you know, that, that sound that means that the thing is shooting. That was like 150 shots right there. And that's it. And I've, I've actually been in a range where I, I saw this weapon, not on this airplane, but I heard this weapon being fired. And uh, the other interesting thing underneath is all the, all the shell casings that fall down um, in the path of where this, this, these planes are going. But anyway... Um, this is what it looks like when it's shooting. And again, that's, the, that's, that's a picture of someone uh, being, I know it, it's the picture of someone being killed, but it's also the picture of someone's life being saved. And uh, we have to keep these things in mind if we're going to enjoy the illustration. I do, uh, I, I had a, a, a friend um, at, when I was in, in college at the Army School. We have what's called the, the Academy Exchange Program. And you'd have uh, one cadet from Navy and one cadet from Air Force and one cadet from Coast Guard, you know, up the street. And, um, and yeah, that's all. And they would come and uh, spend a semester of their, their junior year and, uh, and, you know, work within their major but at the other school because it's, it's, it's you're, you're getting a bachelor's degree in science is what you're doing. And um, the guy that was the Air Force guy was associated with us. He was in our company. And uh, he was, they call them Zoomies. Um, the cadets from the Air Force Academy because they're, they're going to zoom around. Anyway, um, uh, he wanted to fly this. So he was very popular with us as the Army guys that were going to go be infantry guys and carry backpacks and grease tank treads and stuff, that he was going to fly this thing. The, the, there is more armor on this airplane, I think, than any other airplane that we have because it's flying so slowly. It's such an easy target. There was a lady, that, uh, a lady pilot that flew one of these in combat in Iraq in 2003 and proved that the redundant systems, uh, when you lose hydraulic power, you can fly it like the old style with just friction and force. She flew one uh, after it had been shot up. Part of the wing was shot off. One of the engines was destroyed. One of the tail fins was off. And then she still flew it for another hour to get back to her base uh, after a combat mission. Um, this thing is so rugged and so powerful, but it needs, it needs fuel. It needs the ability to do its job. 
He said to them in verse 44 of Luke 24, focusing on the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. These are the last words of Jesus as Luke presents them in the end of his gospel. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, as you remember uh, from the road to Emmaus, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now let's review a couple of thoughts that we have from Luke 24. The road to Emmaus story is not about it's Jesus. He's actually disguised as he teaches them the scriptures. He says, this is what the scriptures say about the Christ. And they're going to say, weren't our hearts burning when he told us? Now, the point of Luke 24, whether it's the angels at the, at the grave, did, don't you remember Jesus told you? Or whether it's Jesus in disguise, is go back to the word of God. Go back to the scriptures you've received. Pay attention to what we already have. And I, I want you to watch this. That is a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. He, in 2 Peter 1, inspired the scriptures through the prophets. This is a direct connection to the Spirit of God who is working behind the scenes, especially in his way of bringing forth special revelation through the prophets. And so he opened their minds, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, as he told us in the Upper Room Discourse that he would send the Holy Spirit who would do this as well. In verse 46, and Jesus said to them, thus it was written, and thus the Christ would suffer and rise again from the, uh, from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says, you're witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And what I want to keep pointing out is that Jesus' emphasis in the Great Commission section of Luke is on the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of the Father from on high. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, and we know that because we keep reading what Luke wrote. The way he closes out the Gospel of Luke in verse 50, and he led them as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. They, after worship again, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now flip over, not in your pews, but in your Bibles, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, where Luke continues writing. It's the same writer, second volume, and he tells us this is the second volume, as we saw last week. In verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Luke ends with Jesus departing the scene, and and Acts begins with that was all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, Jesus continues to do and to teach. Jesus is still working. And this, again, the, the, that's a riddle for us that the upper room discourse of John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, that unlocks what we're talking about. Jesus is with us to the end of the age in Matthew 28. So in Acts chapter 1, when we switch over from Luke, we see that this is a continuation of what Luke was telling us. And this is a Almost the insertion of Jesus is blessing them and he, he raises his hand and gives a blessing. We don't know what he said. It's almost like this content, the stuff in your red letter Bible here in Acts 1 is the continuation of what he was telling us from Luke 24. And I wanted you to get the whole picture as we think about this, the focus of the mission statement. They ask him a question in verse 6 because he'd been teaching them about the kingdom in verse 3. Verse 6, when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He doesn't say you misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. He says it's none of your business about timing. I take that very seriously personally. I challenge you to take that seriously. The issue is not their conception of the restoration of the kingdom. That's a real thing. We just saw it in Isaiah 2. 
their misunderstanding is whether they need to know about time. No, you don't know that there's something else in God's plan that hasn't been revealed, but don't worry. You are perfectly situated here in Jerusalem to receive what has been promised. And Jesus said to them, okay, his correction, again, is not the nature of the kingdom, but the timing and their need to know timing. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. All right, and we said, when we look at Luke 24 and we look at Acts 1, these themes keep coming up. The power that comes from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses and even in Jerusalem out and to the ends of the earth, to the remotest part of the earth. There are lots of ways that we could compare the last statements of Jesus in this mission, mission briefing mode that he has at the end of his ministry. Uh, there are lots of ways we can compare this, but one thing I want to point out, Matthew 28, you're going to make disciples of all the nations. Look what he says. You're going to be my witnesses to the remotest part of the earth. He's talking about the same thing. He has different discussions that they've presented, but the point for you believers who actually believe the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to write the scriptures and the gospels, the point to grasp is what, are the, what is the church supposed to be doing? Because Jesus tells us in these mission statements. Now Luke focuses the attention, focuses the attention on the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the book of Acts is. This verse eight is the outline of the book of Acts. This is the geographical flow of the gospel ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit, okay? And, and that's the big deal that continues in the time in which we live right now. That's why Acts is so important. That's why the gospels are so important because you and I have been given the Holy Spirit so that we will participate in this mission. And much like my friends flying those uh, warthog miss- missions that have a mission to accomplish, that are going to save lives, often by destroying enemy equipment and personnel, But those men with a mission, and men and women now flying these combat missions, cannot do that work that is so vital unless they have the right equipment, unless they have the right energy, the right fuel. And the analogy I want to make for you is you have been given the equipment you need, but you need the Holy Spirit to empower you to run that equipment. You cannot fly without the power that he supplies. And so very much like this, uh, this warthog needs a new uh, fuel tank, we need the power of the Spirit. I want to give you one illustration of the importance of this promise in the life of uh, the Apostle Peter, who is one of the founders, if you will, one of the, uh, the, the foundation stones, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, of the church, the apostles and prophets uh, founded on Christ. The Apostle Peter is a vital, vital person in our, uh, in our understanding, in our teaching. He is uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ under whom we uh, submit as, as we have First and Second Peter and we listen to what he said. Um, but uh, we have something against Peter in terms of his performance. Peter, who in Matthew 16 says, you're the Christ. I have no question whether Peter is a believer by Matthew 16. That's the point. But Peter's a failure when he has the opportunity to witness for Christ. Little girl by the, by the fire. He denies Jesus Christ three times. A little girl can scare him away. He is a powder puff. He is not a rock. He is not stabilized. He is a reed. And he's broken by the lightest wind. And it's tragic because he's afraid. Who's the one that walks on water with Jesus? Peter. And what happens? He looks at the wind and falls because he stops trusting in Jesus. Peter is a very 
tragic character until God sets upon him with power to do what God wants him to do. And that's awesome. We are not to beat up on the Apostle Peter in his pre-Holy Spirit days before he received the Holy Spirit. But we are to see that we, like him, are useless. We are hopeless. We are helpless without the work of God in us. And I can show you that in John chapter 15. Okay, I can show you that in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5. Really, the Holy Spirit passages are telling you that we really need God to work in us if we will accomplish any of God's works. It really will be his work through us. I said a few things in conclusion about the power of the Great Commission, and I want to review them briefly with you. I said, first of all, that Acts chapter 2 describes the coming or the advent of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers for service. Now, there are some that say, no, 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 they were always, the Holy Spirit's always been in all people because everybody's the church. And my whole point is, no, the Holy Spirit came as described in Acts 2, and that began the church, which is a new work. And the mystery of the church in Ephesians 3 is that you have one new man, one new body of Jews and Gentiles. The two types of humans, biblically, are now in one body in Christ called the church. That's the mystery of this age, as Paul calls it. But, um, but in Acts 2, you have this picture of the coming of the Spirit. Now, if anyone ever tells you, no, 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 they always had the Holy Spirit, you go back to the streams of living water in John 7. If you, you, you come to me and drink, and I will, um, let's see, let me read it to you. The streams of living water passage in John chapter 7. John 7, uh, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, people will attack the exegesis of that passage and say, that's not saying what it's saying. I think it's saying what it's saying. John is writing after he's had the Holy Spirit for 60 years. John's writing toward the end of his life in his gospel. He's, he dies somewhere after 96 AD. Okay, John's a, an elderly man who's been walking by the Spirit according to what Paul tells us and what Jesus taught us um, for, for more than half of his life now. And so he says, th- this wasn't happening yet. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is what we have now, this streams of living water. And that's a key passage on the, the Spirit, which we'll get to um, in December in our study on the, the spiritual life. <clears throat> but... This is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me illustrate it with a, a, a really dramatic verse in Acts chapter 2. So um, there's the coming of the Spirit described with this noise. There's, um, there's the, the filling of the house with this wind. There, uh, there are tongues in verse 3 uh, of, of, as a fire distributing themselves on those that rest, rest each one on them. This is a one-time event. It's a dramatic, flashy event. The Holy Spirit doesn't usually uh, show forth something visual, but here we have this visual manifestation. Um, uh, if, if this is normative, if we all need to have the tongues and stuff of fire over our heads, um, we're in trouble because that hasn't happened since Acts 2, since this day of Pentecost event. And it's really important because the, the, the apostles are becoming the beginning of the church. In verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I could translate other languages. We use the word tongue in a a slang sense or a a metaphoric sense for language. I don't speak that tongue. It's an old way of talking. Okay, that's exactly legitimate in Greek. And I think when someone heard this, they're saying languages. I think they heard languages and not gibberish ever. 
ever, 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 ever. Now, people have an experience of emotionally uh, administered gibberish. They do. Throughout the world, all over the place, in pagan animistic religions, just because someone has an experience doesn't mean we're understanding what the Word of God is saying. So I believe absolutely in Acts 2. I think it's so vital and critical to grasp. But if it, if it takes over that it has to be what I, what I feel like it must be, then we're not going to actually listen to what the Word of God says. Now, if you, listen, if you have an experience, if you have an emotional experience that you feel like I'm describing as gibberish, that is, that is neg- I'm negatively portraying it, I'm just trying to say with respect that word tongues means languages. So it's, I think it's really important to get that. Now, you don't have to, to take my word for it, but I would challenge you to study it with your eyes open and your finger in the Bible. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the phrase that I really want to attack here, they were, or, or to understand, to submit to, to. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The word is pimplemi. It is not plerao in Ephesians 5.18. It is pimplemi. They're related, but they're not the same word. And this word is used of John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit and John the Baptist from his mother's womb. This is the kind of work that we read about on Saul, King Saul, on David, on Samson. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a few that are sometimes described as the Holy Spirit broke forth, salach, upon them. Or one translation says prevailed upon, okay? The, the idea is broke in and, and, and you didn't really have a choice in this. He just shows up and empowers and um, this is the way John the Baptist would be described. That's not church truth. That's not after the day of Pentecost, the work of the Spirit. That's what God was doing from uh, Moses' day. And uh, I, I, th- I believe before with a few. We're told that Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was the, the architect, designer, craftsman, artisan who built the Ark of the Covenant and, most, and oversaw the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, he's, a, he's a craftsman, and so the Holy Spirit filled him to enable him to do that work. And so whenever you see filling in Acts, it's pimplamy. It's the same special occasional empowerment. But the point that's really important is the Holy Spirit is on them as they're going to begin preaching the gospel. And by the time you get to the end of Acts 10, the Holy Spirit is on all who, all who believe. And here's the, there's a difference that happens over time in Acts. At one point, there's a handing of the Spirit off by touching people. The apostles can touch people before you get to Acts 10. And it's, it's, it's for Israel, apparently. When the Jews come to Christ and become Christians, and the first Christians were all Jews, they, they, they received the Holy Spirit by laying on of hands by the apostles. But when you get to Acts 10, and, and Peter is preaching to Cornelius, the Gentiles' family, as he's saying Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, they begin speaking with foreign languages without anyone touching them. The Spirit is manifesting Himself that He is present in those people, and they now have a Gentile indwelling of the Holy Spirit called the Gentile Pentecost. There's no laying on of hands at that point, and I believe then on. See, Acts is a transitional book, but, but what you want to look at when you, when you look at verse 4 is they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Those two things are really important. It's a thematic thing that keeps coming up. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And how does the Holy Spirit announce His presence? People are now empowered in a special gifted way to speak the praises of God in a special way. The Holy Spirit is somehow connected with the communication, with the messaging, with the getting the word out because that's the mission. And so Acts 2.4 is not a, a, 
an, an emotionalistic passage. It's an empowerment passage. I would just hold the place, go to my favorite verse on the filling of the Spirit for our day, and uh, verse 18 of Ephesians 5. Do not be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I would say by the Spirit. And I would say, what's he fill you with? The Word of God. Be filled by the Spirit, and look what the consequence is. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is in you for the mission, and the message is the message. And whether it's a special enablement in Acts 2 of a few to have this gift of languages where they're glorifying God. By the way, Pentecost is when all the diasporas in town, you've got Jews from every different language of the Mediterranean world there. And that's what you read in Acts 2 is the people are hearing the praises of God in their foreign languages. I believe the gift of tongues was a special ministry in the early church where people could not know the language that they spoke in, the praises of God, but the hearers would know. And that's why in Acts, or for second, First Corinthians, you need a translator, the person that knows the language. And, and ver, uh, the second point I made about Acts, after Acts 2 and the power of the Great Commission is that this is the beginning of the church. It's composed of all who are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. And I wanted to run that down with you. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I never want it to be a review. I always want it to be a, further, a furtherance of our understanding. Let's don't, um, let's don't be static. Key known proficit deficit. Who knows in advance retrogresses. The Apostle Paul introduces his discussion on the spirituals. We translate spiritual gifts because what is spiritual? It's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that, that has to do with, uh, with some some counterfeit spirituality was going on in Corinth with uh, some Greek word games. But in verse 4, now there were varieties of gifts. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is one of your core three spiritual gifts passages, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and uh, Romans chapter 12. And notice that the way he thinks of spiritual gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 12, they're manifestations of the Holy Spirit. See, I believe every believer, by verse, where would we just read? Um, Verse 7, every believer has a spiritual gift, which is a special manifestation enablement of the Holy Spirit, and it's for the common effect. It's for the benefit of the whole group. And then he goes through a list of gifts, many of which I believe have passed on because they ran their course in, in, in the era of the early church in which the canon, the scripture was being composed. But he says, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the effective miracles, to another prophecy, to another the, the distinguishing of spirits various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. I believe this was extremely relevant to these people he's writing to because these types of gifts are being expressed in the early church. And I would challenge you that when you hold a Bible, you are enriched beyond the riches of the spiritual gifts in Corinth 
because you have the full prophetic testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles and the prophets under them like Luke and Mark. You have the full testimony which edifies the body of Christ and for which these gifts of revelation were designed to, uh, to sort of fill the gap. I really think it's important that we have the Bible. Now, I can't prove what I just said to you from the scriptures because nobody who wrote scriptures ever held a complete scriptures. What I'm talking about when I hold a Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit in testifying to the Word of God through church history. And we got the count right. It's 27 New Testament books and 39 Old Testament books. All right, so I believe that we have the beginning of the, of the body of Christ and uh, verse 13 is our tar- uh, verse 12 is kind of my target here in 1 Corinthians 12 for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body though they are many are one body so also is Christ for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks slaves or free we're all made to drink of one spirit i think two ministries of the holy spirit are mentioned in verse 13 the drinking of the spirit is your indwelling by the spirit he lives in you forever he comes he's coming to you to abide forever and the first ministry in verse 13 is the Spirit baptize you, or you baptize into one spirit, into the, into the body by the Holy Spirit. I think that is the one baptism of the body of Christ, and it makes you one with Christ. It's the identification we have of Christ. That's why I say, in my second point here, this is the beginning of the church in Acts 2. Now, all that, if, if this is news to you, I didn't design this talk tonight for those that it's kind of news to you, so I'm sorry if that's news. But let me, let me back up just a little bit. We have one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God who exists eternally in three persons. Every person of the Trinity is portrayed in Scripture as having a different purpose, function, design. Or, I shouldn't say design. God is the designer, but different function in this eternal fellowship and communion of the three persons. The Father does what a Father does. The Son does what a Son does. The Spirit operates behind the scenes and empowers and enlivens and so forth. And so he hovers over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2. Right, the Holy Spirit is generally a behind-the-scenes operator like wind. You can't see him, Jesus says, but you see his effects. Now, when we're talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 as the birthday on Pentecost of the church, 50 days, Pentecost. Okay, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends. 10 days later, the Spirit descends on the church to, to build the church, to make the church. And Jesus' words are fulfilled on this rock, I will build my church. In the future, I'll build my church. This is the beginning of what the Bible calls the church. This is the body of Christ, and it's composed of those not who have water sprinkled or dunked on. They're dunked in water or sprinkled or any of that. It's people who believe in Christ and then, by God's grace, are baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And it's a dry baptism by the Holy Spirit, and I believe that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, all that, there's a reason I'm talking about this on mission. Because Luke 24 and Acts 1 are talking about the Holy Spirit in the Great Commission section of Luke. That's really important for us to grasp because just like the A-10 Thunderbolt 2 can't do its job unless it has fuel, we cannot be on this mission that Jesus put the church on unless we have the Holy Spirit. That's why you have the Holy Spirit because you have work to do. That's the first thought I I want you to really grasp about this. The second thing that I think is really important about the Holy Spirit in you is that if you have the Holy Spirit, but you're not on mission, then you're squandering the greatest resource ever given to human beings. It's a great waste of resources. All that you've worked for in life, everything that you've ever striven to accomplish, put that over here. 
And then let's talk about God gave you the Holy Spirit. Everything you've ever accomplished in life over here and God gave you by grace when you first believed the Holy Spirit. Now, which one of those has greater weight in your thinking and your scale of values? I hope, I pray that the infinite weight of God, the Holy Spirit living in you, whether you feel him or not, and I don't believe this is a feeling thing. I think this is God tells us and we operate based on what he said. The gravity of the gift of the Spirit needs to weigh heavily upon us so that we realize, wow, my life is a total waste if I'm not fulfilling that for which the Spirit has come to abide in me to accomplish. Our attention, if we do what, what I'm doing with Acts 1 and Luke 24, is we get an attention on what we call biblical pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so forth was, um, what does the Bible teach? And I, I showed you this slide last week, some topics in biblical pneumatology. And, um, I, and I went through some of these, and I want you to, uh, this is a lot of information. This is like a summary of what the whole Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. And uh, some of these things will be totally new to you, probably. I had a recent encounter with a person that said the Holy Spirit only works in believers in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit didn't come until the New Testament, so you don't have any work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament on believers. And that doesn't work if you've actually read the Old Testament. Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Yahweh, that's the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Yahweh shows up and enables Samson to do some really, really powerful military work to the Philistines. That, that Samson work is not from his rippling muscles or his fancy hairdo, right? Samson can do what he does because he has the Spirit of God, and it says in, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, upon him. He has the Spirit of God upon him. And, that, and so Saul can muster the army, and the whole armies of Israel get together and unite under Saul because the Holy Spirit's mightily upon him. David prays that the Spirit not be taken from him. There's a special work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, in the, early, uh, in the, in the earlier uh, phases of human history. And, um, and I've pointed these out. Uh, my favorite passage to talk about this is when Moses is whining to God in Numbers 14. I can't do it. God, just kill me. I love that prayer. Oy vey, just kill me after all, you know. Moses is done. And he says, I can't bear these people anymore with all their, you gave us beautiful, beautiful shortbread cookies from heaven. What is this? What, what is this? That's what manna means. It means what is it? What, what, what is, what's it? What's, what's it? It's a, we have a whatchamacallit candy bar now. They, they, God gave them shortbread cookies from heaven, the bread of angels, and they say, ah, it's missing something. I know meat. We need meat. Don't give us this limbus bread. That's how Tolkien took it and turned the elf bread into, into man. That's, that's what, I'm sure that's what Tolkien's saying. Whenever they ate that, they had perfect nutrition, perfect health in Tolkien. But anyway, so God gave the manna. They didn't like it. And then, and then he sends the quail because they're, oh, they're all weeping at their tents. The coffee and the shortbread cookies just aren't cutting it. So we want meat. I'm in heaven, by the way, with manna. I'm sure it would have gone great with a cup of coffee. But... Um, but, but, but God says, oh, no, no, we, I got this. I got this. And he sends them, apparently, all of the quail in the world. And <laughs> miraculously makes more quail. And, um, and then he, he, he strikes them down while they're eating it in their tents. While the quail meat is between their teeth, he sends a plague among them. And, um, anyway, uh, Moses is complaining to God in that same chapter. And he says, I just can't do it. Just, uh, just kill me. And God says... 
I know what you can and can't do. You don't know. That's basically, let me paraphrase the Lord. I know what you can do. I know what you can't do. We've already had this talk in Exodus 3. I made your mouth. I know what you can accomplish. He says, you know what? Bring me the 70 of the elders of Israel. And if you want, I'll give the spirit that I put on you. I'll give that spirit to them. And then guess what happens? You remember what happens in this story? The elders of Israel are able to do something as a consequence of the spirit being upon them. They prophesy but they don't do it again, it says. And it's like God gives Moses this big pageant, this big show, 70 of the subordinate rulers under him, (coughs) 70 of the Sanhedrin, the the 70 elders of Israel are now able to prophesy like Moses, the prophet of Israel, can prophesy, but they can't do it again. So God is saying, look, one of you with my spirit is sufficient to, 70 of you ruling over everyone is sufficient. The, the point is, I'm with you. Just shut up, get a nap, drink some water. You know, yeah, yeah, it's hard. But think about what I've told you. You have my spirit upon you. And that's, God is always challenging us when we doubt him. Didn't I already tell you this? I think, read Numbers 14, and I think you'll see that that tone is present in there, especially where he, oh, bring me 70 elders. He gives them the Holy Spirit. They prophesy, but they don't do it again. The whole point was, Moses, you've got God in you. Just relax. That's the, that's the idea. And, and that endowment passage, we call it endowment because of the clothing language uh, often used in the Old Testament. And lavash in the Old Testament is translated in duo in the New Testament. So the, some theologian, I don't know who, said, let's call that Old Testament ministry endowment, in duo, to clothe. They're clothed with the Spirit. Second Peter, let's go to Second Peter 1. I want to make a point that Luke is making in Luke 24 about the Holy Spirit, I think. Second Peter chapter 1. Let's flip back to the maps and then, then roll back about 20, 30 pages, and you'll get to Second uh, Peter. Breaking into an argument, verse 20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We don't have a lot of verses in the Bible about how God brought forth through the prophets of the Old Testament, but we do have this. We do have 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and profitable. Those two verses come together, 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1, to show you that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is personally responsible for the scriptures. What we have from the prophets, we got because the Holy Spirit somehow inspired, exhaled this truth into them, and it's God breathed. And so when you talk about breath, when you talk about breath, it makes sense that you'd be talking about ruach or pneuma. Because in Hebrew, a ruach can be a wind or a breath or a spirit. The ruach of Yahweh, the spirit of God, is, could be called the breath of God. Okay, we, we, We're right to call it the spirit of God, but this word is a fluid word that can mean several different things. Same thing with pneuma. Pneuma means air or breath or wind or spirit. Okay, because there are, there's, there's something they share. They're all invisible, okay? But th- this is the, these are the words used of the third person of the Trinity. Also of you, you have a spirit. You are a spirit in flesh. So um, when we talk about the scriptures, all through we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Don't say the Holy Spirit wasn't active in the Old Testament. He inspired everything we have in 39 books. Most of the Bible is the Old Testament. And it is all a testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, about God who wants us to know him. 
And all Scripture is, is God-breathed. As a little aside, as a little bitty aside, I want to say, uh, of, of late I hear that the law is bad and that grace is good. The law is bad and grace is good as we eat our lobsters and crawfish. Lobster in here, a New England crawfish down where I'm from. And what's funny is that crawfish are little lobsters. But anyway, um, the law is bad because we're not under the law, we're under grace, is what's said. It's what Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 6. He doesn't say the law is bad. In fact, nothing in the scriptures ever says anything God gave us is bad. The applicability of the Mosaic law to us as a covenant people, nationally covenanted to God as Israel, that's the issue. But the law isn't bad. The law is absolutely perfect, righteous, good, and holy. And what it does, of the many things it does, is it testifies to the righteousness, the perfect, righteous character of God. That's the thing that we'll never get from ourselves. We'll never understand it unless God shows us many pictures of it. And so the Mosaic law shows you many pictures of how God is different from us and the difference is righteousness versus us, sinful and unrighteous. And that's why Jesus exposits, doesn't improve upon. He takes them in the Sermon on the Mount to the law and says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But if you hate your brother, I say you've committed murder. He's not saying we have a new law. He's saying you didn't understand the law is about your heart. You weren't understanding that it's not about the outward things. It's about the inner life, the inner responsiveness to God. And so uh, this, this concept of the law is when you read about the Mosaic law, remember, you're talking about what the Holy Spirit uh, inspired Moses to write, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And some of it God gave by direct imprint from his own hand in the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and by dictation in many things that God said to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. So let's be careful about um, what we do with the Old Testament while we acknowledge the new order in which we walk by the Spirit. We've gone to 1 Corinthians 12. I'd like to give you a quiz now and just see if you've understood uh, the words coming out of my mouth. What do Luke's commissioning passages teach us about the Holy Spirit? It's a quiz you can... Take out a piece of paper, number it, number one through five. See if you get the same answers that I got. By the way, the way to prepare for this exam would be to be here last time. And if you, did, if you weren't here last time, um, that's bad. But, but we did provide the audio and the video presentation online for those of you who can click, left click on the mouse. So why did God give us the Holy Spirit is the first question I would ask you based on what we're told in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1, especially verse 8. And now let's be interactive because y'all are so tired. It's so hot in here. And for some reason, I'm feeling monotone. I don't know why I'm monotone tonight. Y'all have to pray about that. Lord, help him not be so doggone monotone. Now, um, what, uh, what is the answer to number one? Why did God give us the Holy Spirit? Okay to empower us. I'm there. I'm there. And for what purpose? Yes. So we could tell others about Jesus Christ, which is another way to say that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 would be to be my witnesses. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we would be empowered to tell people about Jesus, which is to be his witnesses. See this quiz, y'all are going to ace it. You already know the answer to the, to the questions. All right. How does the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ relate to our walk? This is a little bonus question of theology. He's called the Spirit of Christ, and we're told that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
In fact, my favorite place to talk about the Holy Spirit's work in Christ is when he's casting out demons, he's doing the miracles that proclaim the gospel, that I'm here among you. Jesus is offering the kingdom to Israel. And uh, he has these powerful kingdom works that he does. And Israel, in Matthew 12, the, the leaders say he's casting out demons in the power of Satan. Do you remember what Jesus calls that? When they say you're doing the works of miracles that you're doing in the power of Satan, what does Jesus call that, that accusation? Yeah, he calls it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Now, think, let that sink in. He's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. He's doing the miraculous works. And we all say, well, that proves that he's God. Well, it definitely testifies to his message. And his message says he's the son of man. And so run that all down. But he says the works that I'm doing are the works of my father. And he in his humanity is empowered by the third person. He is the second person of the Trinity. But in his humanity, he's empowered by the third person of the Trinity to do these works. Now, this is the mission that he's on. Put this together with John 17. The works that you've sent me to do, I've done them. I've already accomplished that which you sent me, which is to reveal the Father all through John. That's what he's here to do is to reveal the Father. When you tell others about Jesus Christ, who's the only way, the truth, and the life to the Father, you understand you are entering into Jesus' mission that he already is, has accomplished. You're not going to die on the cross for someone's sins, but by your walk by the Spirit, you will reveal the Father. You will introduce others to this eternal life with God that can be only received through Jesus Christ. So my question, how does the work of the Spirit and the life of Christ relate to our walk? Jesus is the prototype. He's the one who pioneered this walk in, in broken, I'm not, not, sorry, not broken, but limited, weakened flesh of humanity. He walked in the power of God, the Spirit, to accomplish the Father's purposes. And whatever God had for him, including not eating bread, Jesus is a great baker. He could have made some wonderful stones into bread, but because he's empowered by the Spirit, he doesn't have to turn the stones into bread because, for me, the will of my Father is what I'm going to eat. A man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the, the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ is a pattern for you. You're not the Messiah but you are in Christ and you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So present your members to God as those alive from the dead. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. All right, so the third question is, what is the significance of a believer with the Holy Spirit not participating in the mission? Big question, stick with me. It's gonna be so nice to go outside in the cool autumn evening. What is the significance of a believer who doesn't enter the mission and yet has the Holy Spirit. It's a waste. <sighs> Wasted life. Did you ever, um, did you ever uh, work out one day really hard and then eat too much ice cream later? We could talk about all kinds of ways. Do you ever say, I, I was this way. I would have so much that I could accomplish and most of it I was interested in my academic training. And so when we got to Friday, I'm like, oh, time. I've got time, time to do things well, to get this project just right. And I'm gonna get home. I'm just gonna take a few minutes Friday afternoon, you know, get back to my barracks room and then get to work. And then you get, you start looking at the clock. It's 5 p.m. on Sunday and you haven't accomplished anything. And you, you actually did rest. You actually did crash. You, you unwound a little bit, probably too much. 
but uh, I had all that time, and I, you know that feeling of waste? That like I, I, I could have relaxed a little bit, gone for a run or something, but I should have gotten work done and feel so much better. But you feel like you've wasted that time. I've felt that many times. My college students are like, yeah, testify. It's awful, that, that, that w- wasted weekend. What did you waste it on? Oh, Three's Company reruns. You know, like Mayberry RFD. It's not even Andy. It's, it's the knockoff after the knockoff. Uh, you're watching Chachi and Joni, like anything not to get back to work. You know what I mean? And then at the end, when you've wasted your time and your opportunity, you're so sad because you know you could have done so much better. And that's a silly way to illustrate What's happening at the judgment seat of Christ when we shrink back from him in shame because we didn't redeem the time for the days are evil and therefore limited. We didn't say, I had just one chance to suffer in the mission for Christ for an eternal consequence of how he, how he looks at my, cho- my choices and I wasted it. So the question that I would rephrase with you is, what is the greatest waste of resources in human history? It is the believer in this age who does not what? Participate in the mission? Who doesn't go on mission? Now, what do I mean the mission? Making disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit by teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Give me, somebody give me some objections to the mission. Why are you, or why is the average Christian sitting in the pew not going to look at that mission statement and say, yeah, sign me up? What, what are the objections? Give me an objection. I don't mean your objections. I mean people's objections, of course. Nobody here objects to the mission. Okay, we're too busy. Too, too busy. What's that? We're afraid. What are we afraid of? Rejection. By whom? We're, we're afraid other people are going to, usually strangers, right? I'm afraid my person that I care about and know very well, I mean, that I have a personal relationship, I'm afraid they'll reject me too, but I'm afraid the stranger is going to think ill of me sometimes. Well, what do you think Jesus is going to think of you <laughs> if you don't do his work? You better be worried about him, right? I mean, this is just a perspective thing. But we are. We're afraid of what man can do to me or what someone will think of me. Why, are we, why else? Why don't we uh, do what it says when it says, make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and by teaching them to keep all that I command you. Why don't we do it? What are our objections? We're lazy. We're eating chips on the sofa. Think, imagining the list of things we could be doing when X happens, right? We're, we're, whole, we're, we're procrastinators. What else? What else keeps us off mission? Yeah. Testify, brother. Entertainment. Yeah, we can, we can find a way to divert our attention from the waste that we feel. By the way, if you just sit quietly and think about it for a second, just let it, just no entertainment, no inside, outside interruptions. Just think about the, the time ticking by. You don't have 50,000 days of life. That's not how long your life is. It's, it's more like 30, okay? When you start thinking about how short life is and how valuable it is, and you're not being distracted from that feeling, it'll start weighing on you that the time is short and life matters, Okay? Entertainment. But what, by the way, I just told you the secret to killing the entertainment uh, distraction. You know what you do? You just unplug it and sit for a second. Just think. Just sit and think about what life is about. Just, just disconnect. Every time, I, as a TV head growing up, every time I would unplug and go to nature because the Boy Scouts would go camp out every weekend, by eight, six or seven hours out in the woods, I was oriented always. 
It always, and that same with the field on the tank, go out into the field, all of a sudden life is real and you're not, um, you're not distracted anymore and it's amazing. And, and so the, my neighbors down the street are right, we should just throw the TVs away. <laughs> the kids I grew up with are Pentecostal, that, that no TV, they, ended up, they were right. I'll, I'll testify they were right. I was wrong about that. Yes, sir. You can find legitimate, pro- wow, they're very sophisticated. You can find legitimate projects to work on, but they're not the mission, and you're distracted from the mission because you're workaholicking on something less. One of my big objections is I don't feel called to speak. Anybody feel that way? I don't feel called to speak. They asked me to pray in the prayer meeting, and I was like, no, nope, next time maybe, right? People are, they, I always feel pressure that I've got to go talk, and this mission is a message. It's a message producing. What's the answer to that objection about being on mission if you're a not talker, if you're kind of an introverted person, and you think that the Lord has not gifted you with a speaking responsibility or opportunity? What's the answer to that? Some of you non-talkers, speak up for me. <laughs> do you know the answer? If you know the answer, but you don't want to say it, you know, you can do that. You can show me that. You, it's very easy. Yeah, you know the answer. The answer is that there's lots of work to do in the mission. It isn't just the Apostle Paul who speaks. It isn't just the pastor who pastors. There's work for everyone, and just read the scriptures on the, on the commands. Every one of you has a spiritual gift, and it may be that your gift is a, a different type of work than the public speaker thing. It may be that by, by God's grace, you're the kind of person that can sit down with an individual and just listen and have that kind of ability to build a rapport. You're not a public, you're not going to get up in public. I know a friend that doesn't want to ever speak public or speak to one-on-one because it's, it's horrifying to him, but in front of a group of, of 100 or 1,000, no problem. But when he has to talk to an individual, that's where it gets really stressful for him, right? Some people are just, we're just how we're wired. So the, the answer is, okay, don't start taking quizzes about your gifts. I don't think that's wise. But Start asking God, how can you plug me into this mission? Pastor Dave says there's lots of opportunity, lots of work to do. The gifts that are listed, we do have helps. There's encouragement. There's, there's teaching. There are lots of gifts, especially in Romans chapter 12, that I think continue today. Um, and so if you have a spiritual gift, you know, growing spiritually, you're going to express it. That's what you're designed to do. By the way, I believe spiritual gifts, by virtue of Romans or 1 Corinthians 13, kind of set in the middle of that passage. Spiritual gifts are a special enablement for you to love. How can you love one another? How can you love the outsider? What's your role in that? And, and the answer is you have a role. Okay, you might be a bringer. You might, I, I've invented a spiritual gift title. Some people are just good at bringing other people to hear the word. I think Andrew does this. with. Uh, he's not spiritually gifted to do this, but he brings Peter to meet Jesus. Some people are just Andrews. They just, they just bring I had a Bible study in Iraq. There was a kid, a guy who worked with me. He would never teach. He didn't want to teach. He wanted me to teach. But he would go bring people. We always had five or six people for the Warhorse Bible study. It was always three or four guest stars. It was like the, two, the, the three normal guys and then always the three guest stars for Scooby-Doo that were special guests. It was amazing. Every Bible study. Might as well have taught the same thing every time. Could never get the same group, you know. But he was a bringer. He just kept bringing people. Maybe that's what you're supposed to do. The point is... 
we need to see our lives as mission. What is the role that God wants me to play in this making disciples, disciples enterprise? And I believe the institutional basis for this is the local church. I think that's why you have the pastoral epistles and the letters to the epistles through the church, uh, through, the, through the scriptures. And, um, and this and local church is a challenging doctrine. It's one of the most divisive doctrines uh, in church history. And, um, and I think it's, it's, a, it's not the, the most important doctrine in the scriptures, but I think it is an important one. And my summary is the local church is portrayed as a household of the faith, but it's composed of households. Household of households. That's kind of the design, it seems, that God made us. One last question before we close. What is one task, uh, we would say, summarizes the mission which the Spirit empowers? So it's one task. What's the one task? You're going to fly the airplane as a bush pilot to set up the missionary resupply for the Minya people for Wes and Penny Chapel in Papua New Guinea. Your, your ministry work is flying the airplane for new tribes. And you land the airplane in the mountains and you offload the cargo and then everybody's okay and you have a little prayer meeting maybe and then you fly back. How is that part of the mission and what, what is that logistical thing doing toward this mission? What's the one task that we can summarize? And I'll give you a hint. It's what Wes is doing. The airplane guy is supporting what Wes is doing. What is Wes doing with the Minya people? He's putting their spoken language into a written form and then he's putting that written form into the, writing the scriptures, translating it into that written form, and then teaching the people to read their scriptures. In other words, making disciples has to be communication. The one task is communication. The summary task is communication. How are you involved in the whatever part of this mission of bringing the communication? And it could be the one-on-one thing. It could be the bring someone to hear communication. It could be, hey, pastor, you know, I don't understand this. And it helps me get some perspective on my audience so that I understand the communication task that I'm responsible for. There are all kinds of ways this works, but you need to be part of this mission. We have to get out of the mindset that people come to hear content and leave. We have to get out of that because it's not a biblical notion. We're on a mission. Don't waste the resources. Um, I have one last photo to show you. As we close very belatedly, that is an A-10 Thunderbolt II getting resupplied. He's getting fueled up in, in, uh, in situ by a, a tanker jet, a tanker or a tanker plane. And this is, a, there's video of this, but um, boy, this is a really interesting thing they can do. They can line the nose of that airplane up so closely to that little nozzle, and there's a vacuum pump that turns on and sucks the nozzle down to the uh, to the, to the gas tank to fill it up, to fuel, fill it up with, with jet fuel. <clears throat> and um, this, I think, is what has to happen for us by the power of the Spirit. He's got to put the Word in us, and then He's got to use it in us as we uh, go about the mission. Otherwise, I think we're going to have to, to, uh, to take a pass on the mighty works that He's called us to do. And um, don't worry, you're, you're adequate to the task because God the Holy Spirit is more powerful than we can even imagine. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of thinking through these things together tonight, to um, being challenged by uh, your mission statements in Scripture, and, um, and the privilege, Father, just the incredible privilege of being called to enter into your historic works, of bringing many to know Jesus Christ. And Father, as we always pray, we know you're the Lord of the harvest. We ask that you would send laborers into a ready harvest. As the, um, as the time continues and the civilization darkens, we know that the, the light of the gospel will be very bright. We ask for opportunities in Christ's name. Amen.